edition of the show before the show podcast, the official podcast of minor league baseball. We are uh, nearing Halloween and I've got two scary faces on the screen with me. Sam Dykstra and Benjamin Hill. How do you like that intro? Welcome, fellas. Yeah, I know we're doing this early my time as I'm in here in Arizona. Uh, it's 8.40 a.m. currently for me, but knowing I have a scary morning face is just how I wanted to start the day. So thank you, Tyler. <laughs> you're very welcome, buddy. Uh, ben, what's going on? You are, you're you're the only person uh, out east this week. It's so rare that we only end up with one person out east. How are things uh, in New York City? Yeah, I'm holding it down. I'm holding it down for the whole city. That's um, good. In the office right now. And um, yeah, I don't know. I've never been one of those people who like, you know, changes my social media account to have like a scary Halloween name. I just never really came up with anything. But I guess you can call me... Boone, boom, Jamin Hill. No, I mean, here's the one I have for you, Ben. It's the haunting of Benjamin Hill. Yeah, there you go. That's, oh, that's pretty good. There you go. Thank that's you. Pretty good. Mm-hmm. Um, well, alongside Sam Dykstra and the haunting of Benjamin Hill, my name is Tyler Mon, and uh, we're talking all things minor league baseball in this week's episode of the show before the show. And we're going to kick things off by uh, thanking you for tuning in wherever you have found the show. You can get in touch with us, podcast at MILB.com. You can find Sam on Twitter at Sam Dykes or MILB, Benjamin Hill at Ben's Biz, and uh, I'm at Tyler Mon. We can uh, talk some minor league baseball things as we head into the minor league baseball offseason. We're in kind of that slow period where as the big league playoffs go on, not a lot of minor league headlines or news items, but uh, there's always good stuff to talk about. And with the World Series starting tomorrow, we're recording this on Thursday, the 27th. There's obviously a ton on the big league side to discuss, um, but we're going to kick things off by talking about one of the longest uh, existing in most historic, most storied franchises in all of minor league baseball. And that is the Buffalo Bisons, a team that uh, has existed in some sort of iteration uh, since the late 1870s, which is insane. The uh, early Buffalo Bisons were actually members of the National League. Buffalo played host to big league baseball multiple times in its early years, and there was a a thought in the early 1990s, maybe they'd get a chance to do it again. Uh, The Buffalo Bisons' current home was built to potentially, at some point, maybe expand and host a big league team. Uh, But all of that is to say there's a ton of history with the Buffalo Bisons. And uh, Ben's got a story at MILB.com about Brian Frank, who runs the Herd Chronicles website, which is dedicated really to all things Buffalo Bisons history. And uh, this is really cool. There's so much history with that team, with that franchise, and with that fan base. It makes my heart very happy that somebody is dedicated to preserving as much of that as possible. Yeah, absolutely. This is when I was in Buffalo last month and I got to meet Brian Frank. I had seen, I'd followed his Twitter account without knowing the person behind it, uh, the Herd Chronicles. That's Herd as in a Buffalo Herd, H-E-R-D. And I was always impressed with this Twitter account because of the daily stuff from, as Tyler was mentioning, Buffalo's rich baseball history, you know, things, um, you know, on this date in Bison's history, or it was this player's birthday. And uh, just really well done, often great historical photos along with the facts. There's a corresponding website with, you know, lengthy articles and historical explorations. And it was just one of those labors of love that I didn't know too much about, but you know, we're all minor league history buffs. And I imagine people, you know, listening to this podcast certainly are as well. And uh, again, like Tyler said, you know, very few, if any, minor league baseball locales, current minor league locales have as rich a history as Buffalo. So um, 
Brian Frank, who runs the Herd Chronicles, I met him when I was at the ballpark. He's a you know credentialed media member. He's at every single game. He does a lot of contemporary stuff as well as the historical stuff. But just talking to him, it was interesting. You know, he grew up going to games at War Memorial Stadium, better known as the Rock Pile. That was where The Natural was filmed. And, uh, you know, he would get game programs. And there was a guy named Joe Overfield who eventually wrote, you know, the book on Buffalo baseball history, you know, who would have these stories in the game programs, um, you know, talking about all areas of Bison's baseball. And, you know, Brian is a baseball obsessed kid was just blown away by reading these articles, realizing that, that the team he was rooting for was once in the majors, had Hall of Famers playing for it. And uh, he just always been really, really into Buffalo baseball history and then was a history major. And he said that when he was in college, he was working on a different project, but he was looking at old newspaper on microfilm and just kept coming around, uh, coming across baseball stories uh, in in the Buffalo newspapers from you know turn of the century, early 20th century. And so he just started compiling so much information, you know, um, thinking about writing a book. And he has just amassed such a you know well-organized wealth of information. And even if you're not specifically a fan of baseball in Buffalo, it's just a really interesting uh, website to visit, the Herd Chronicles, and also a yeah, Twitter account uh, on a daily basis to, just to get a lot of uh, historical nuggets. Because, you know, the history of baseball in Buffalo is very similar to the history of baseball you know, in America, uh, just with its you know inception in the 1870s and all the different iterations of the team, Brian said that right now one of his biggest things is uh, you know researching Negro League teams that played in Buffalo, as well as barnstorming Negro League teams that came to Buffalo. And you know you come across names like Josh Gibson and Satchel Paige and all these greats that came through the city. And he said that finding a Negro League box score uh, from a game in Buffalo is is like the Holy Grail. He's found a few, but those are the toughest thing to find. And that's really what he's looking for right now, because those weren't covered. You know, they were exhibition games. Um, they weren't covered in the newspaper as much as just the day-to-day Bisons were. He said in the black newspapers in Buffalo, he was able to find, um, you know, advertisements quite a bit, but rarely box scores and game recaps. So that's the cool thing about history. And if you get bit by that bug, you just know there's more information out there and it's, it becomes a lifelong quest to find it. And Ben, like, how unique is this? I mean, you know, you talked about how Buffalo has such a long history. It might be one of, it's definitely one of the most historic teams. It might be the most historic team that still exists in minor league baseball. Um, But obviously each team has its own local coverage. I feel like not every team has just somebody who is so dedicated to the history of it. There's like, you know, some stuff of the Midwest League that people really dig into history. Um, But how... How easy is this to reproduce in other places? Like, could Durham do this? Could somebody dig into, I don't know, some of the Cal teams? Yeah, I think there's a lot of markets where this exists in some form or where people could really go a lot deeper with it. Uh, Certainly in my career, I've met a lot of people. Uh, a lot of historians, I think of you know individuals I've met in Great Falls, Montana or Daytona Beach, um, you know, who had just amassed a huge wealth of information about you know the baseball history in those locales. Um, definitely some league historians out there, you know, Midwest League. Uh, I can think of several accounts that are dedicated to that and are you know uh, archiving old box scores. So you know, once you start looking around, you can find quite a bit uh, in the Texas League. Um, you know, the the former president. Um, Tom Kaiser, you know, was also a historian and just had a huge wealth of information related to that league. Um, and I think in most longstanding minor league baseball markets, if you poke around a little bit, you can find the 
you know, at least the unofficial team historian, you know, someone usually an older gentleman, but don't want to stereotype, you know, who really has uh, gone out of his or her way to find the, find that information, but not too many projects I'm aware of that are based on one team and have the scope and scale and wealth of information that, you know, Brian Frank has done with the herd chronicles. So it's, it's a cool thing to check out. Really is a pretty uh, fascinating um, undertaking and story, of course, which you can read at MILB.com. And uh, Ben's stuff, of course, does not stop there. The newsletter continuing to um, provide all kinds of content straight into your email inboxes if you have signed up for the Ben's Biz Beat newsletter. And if you haven't, you should. Uh, ben, what's the lowdown on what is uh, currently popping, as the kids say, in the newsletter? Well, all sorts of stuff. That's what I love about this beat, the Ben's Biz beat, that even during slow times, there's always so much to go back to or explore. And something I'm just starting this week and that will continue throughout the offseason is, of course, you know, I talk about it a lot, you know, on this podcast, my road trips and having a designated eater at every ballpark who eats the you know concession items that my gluten free diet prohibits. So, of course, I did designated eaters again this year and, um, you know, shared a lot of stuff on social media and incorporated some of it into other articles. But I didn't really give the designated eaters their due in terms of standalone write-ups. And I am I started that this week with Sugarland, uh, Constellation Field, the Sugarland Space Cowboys, um, designated eater Mike Lockridge. And uh, I'm going to be doing that, you know, throughout uh, the, the off-season is going back to these ballpark visits and, you know, shining more of a spotlight on the food as well as the designated eaters themselves. Um, so... I think that's, uh, you know, during this slow time of year, it's always good to kind of have these kind of peripheral projects or things from the season you can dig back into. And man, I was in Sugarland in May and looking at it again, you know, close to six months later, I was like, man, this stuff did look good. Uh, brisket nachos and with this Dr. Pepper based barbecue sauce, um, you know, just like a phenomenal item. And uh, the Howdy Dog also had this Dr. Pepper-based barbecue sauce. And, and I think if you're from Texas, I mean, the Frisco Rough Rider Stadium used to be called Dr. Pepper uh, Ballpark. You know, Dr. Pepper is a big thing in Texas and not just as a drink, but uh, as you can see, incorporated into the barbecue and the local cuisine uh, writ large. Um, and also in, in Sugarland, uh, for dessert, they had this Cosmic Sunday, which is topped with uh, astronaut ice cream crumbles, which I thought was, you know, they have the space branding and everything. And uh, astronaut ice cream, you're probably familiar. I was one of many kids who growing up, it didn't seem to matter what museum. It just seemed like if you're a museum, you have astronaut ice cream. In the that really shop. is true. It was mm -hmm. like it wasn't predicated on the field of the museum's study. It was just like any museum. I think even at the zoo, I think the Denver yeah. Zoo carried astronaut ice cream. I, I, I think that that's <laughs> a that good is, point. That is the case. You know, you don't ever go to like a supermarket or a convenience store and pick up some astronaut ice cream. Like you have to go to a gift shop or if you're attending a Sugarland Space Cowboys game, I'm not sure if they sold the astronaut ice cream just as a, as a standalone freeze dried snack. But I thought that was a creative thing to top, uh, you know, regular soft serve with those uh, freeze dried crumbles and very much tied into the space theme. A cosmic Sunday. All right, Ben. Well, uh, the Mill the Marvel partnership is still rolling along here. We're still getting logos. We're about to go on a little bit of a pause with that, uh, with the World Series. But I know there were two logos that came out this week. Um, not that you necessarily like, but you like the concept of it because they bring in a local tie, something that is very specific to the team. And that's the Arkansas Travelers who used uh, the, the Possum Odie in their logo. And also Reno, who used Mr. Baseball 
Well, I don't think a lot of people know about Mr. Baseball. Who is Mr. Baseball? Yeah, if you happen to see, um, so 64 of the Marvel logos out of 96 are now out, and there is a pause right now, I guess, for the World Series. Don't want to uh, step on the World Series toes by unveiling minor league-themed superhero logos. So those will resume the rollout on November 7th. Um, but two recent ones, yes, Reno's Mr. Baseball. Uh, if you look at that and you don't know the story, you're like, eh, well, that makes sense. It's a base, an anthropomorphic baseball you know, very muscular and flying through the air. But that is specifically Reno's superhero logo because Mr. Baseball has been a thing at their home ballpark, uh, which I believe is still called Greater Nevada Field. Sometimes it's tough to <laughs> remember what ballpark names are with the corporate name changes. But that team started in 2009, the Reno Aces. And, and one of the, just the unique elements they added was they have Mr. Baseball, this giant talking baseball who pops up from behind the center field fence during the uh, singing of Take Me Out to the Ball Game, and he sings the seventh inning stretch. I mean, his his mouth moves at least, but it's just one of those quirky minor league things of this giant baseball popping up just for this one song only and uh, singing an iconic song of the sport. So I was glad that they incorporated such a unique, goofy aspect of their game day experience into their Marvel uh, superhero Defenders of the Diamond logo. And, uh, you know, same thing with Arkansas Travelers. Their kind of secondary mascot, Odie, caused a big stir, stir when he was uh, came out. Man, what was that? Better part of a decade ago, for sure. But this very uh, rural, um, off-the-grid backwoods arkansas possum mascot uh that um was very unique and got a lot of attention maybe not all of it positive but hey it's all positive attention in minor league baseball when people are paying attention to your secondary mascot and now Odie, o-t-e-y is a superhero uh as part of the defender defenders of the diamond series so just when you have a uh an arkansas possum as a superhero that's just very unique as well. And I was happy to see Odie get some powers. That's some pretty cool stuff. Uh, you can continue reading about all of those defenders of the diamond logos and such at MILB.com slash Marvel as well. And uh, Benjamin Hill, go subscribe to the newsletter, uh, which you can do anytime and you can get all of Ben's latest and best stuff there and uh, check the site as well. MILB.com really cool story on, uh, on the herd chronicles and everything else. Um, and Ben, we are headed to uh, the Florida state league. Wait, before we do that, Ben, yes. before, we, before you uh, intro our next interview, we have to let you pound your Phillies chest here. Ah, that's a good point. That is a good point. <laughs> this The World Series is starting on Friday. You are our native Pennsylvanian, Philadelphia area native. Um, you know, Tyler and I have seen our teams in the World Series. All three of us have seen our teams in the World Series. Tyler, a little bit longer than some of us, but that's rub that in. Uh, but and probably never again, let's be honest. Yeah, we'll see, we'll see. You never know. Um, but yeah, like with the Phillies coming up in game one, what are your expectations for the World Series? Yeah, well, I'm, I'm deeply biased. You know, it's funny working, you know, in baseball for Major League Baseball, covering the minor leagues, and of course, every affiliate. I don't keep my fandom a secret, but you know, in the day to day, I don't like to walk around or tweet or you know, <laughs> be like, go Phillies, because I'm trying to you know, objectively cover the entire landscape, but especially in the postseason, it's hard not just to really just feel like a fan again. And it's been so fun. Um, yeah, I grew up in Ambler, Pennsylvania, about 20 miles north of the city of Philadelphia. And, um, you know, I didn't really go to minor league games growing up. 
I didn't go to many Phillies games, but I was an obsessive Phillies fan uh, from the jump. You know, Mike Schmidt, my first hero, kind of late in his career. And um, just been, that was just such a defining part of my baseball fandom. I mean, my son is named Harry, at least in part because of the influence of Harry Callis, the Phillies longtime broadcaster, Hall of Fame broadcaster. And um, yeah, I still follow the Phillies and it goes without saying they've had a decade plus of uh you know, largely, I don't quite want to say ineptitude, but disappointment uh, for sure. And uh, to see this run happen just out of left field, so to speak, has been really fun. So am I biased? Yes. But I feel like with what the Phillies did coming in as underdogs against St. Louis, against Atlanta, against San Diego, why can that, why should that not continue now? I mean, it's just part of their script right now that they're going to keep running all the way to the World Series and a, a season that, especially in, as September went on, started to feel like same old Phillies. Like, are they even going to get this sixth spot in the playoffs, a spot that didn't even exist until this season? Are they even going to be able to do that much? Then, bam, they do. Postseason hits, and all of a sudden, they're their team that is just a, a juggernaut. The Astros are as well, but hey, there's postseason history here. Of course, the Astros were in the National League in 1980, but the Phillies uh, pulled out, pulled out that one in 1980 in the NLCS, you know, before my time, but one of the greatest postseason series of all time. So how about another greatest postseason series of all time with, of course, the Philadelphia Phillies emerging triumphant. How many poles did you climb after Bryce Harper's homer? Well, they were too lubricated. So (laughs) I, I, I tried, but I kept sliding all the way back down, which is weird. I wasn't even in Philadelphia. But I think they just knew I was around and we're like, yeah. they, just, they just brought uh, some Crisco to your neighborhood. They're like, <laughs> we got we to make sure Ben's not going to be doing this. Yeah, just in case, just in case. But uh, yeah, man, it's been wild. It has been really wild. And it's fun. I'm, a, I'm always a baseball fan. I think we all are. But as you know, when you work on it, work in it, the day-to-day joy can be a little tougher to feel. And the postseason really pushes that out the window and just makes you feel just excited. Every day I wake up and I'm like, why isn't a game today? Why isn't it happening yet? Let's go. Let's go. Well, it is all starting uh, the day that you hear this podcast, possibly on uh, Friday, the 28th of October. And we are excited for a resident Phil's fan in that regard, Benjamin Hill. And now we're headed to the Florida State League. Ben, tell us what we got coming up. Yeah, the Fort Myers Mighty Muscles. Um, Fort Myers was a community that was obviously uh, you know in the path of and deeply affected by Hurricane Ian. Um, and, uh, we want to check in with the team and, you know, see how, uh, they were affected by the hurricane and, and what kind of, uh, things are doing now in the wake of it, uh, you know, just as, uh, you know, members of the community. So we're going to speak with mighty muscles, Fort Myers, mighty muscles, general manager, Judd Loveland, uh, about just that. Here on the show before the show podcast, we are joined by Judd Loveland, the general manager of the Fort Myers Mighty Muscles. Judd, thanks so much for being here today. I really appreciate you having me, Benjamin. Thank you. And, uh, you know, before we started recording this conversation, I just kind of reflexively said, how are you? Just as as one does. And um, quickly realized with what you and your team and, you know, everyone in, uh, Fort Myers uh, has been through recently with Hurricane Ian. That that is a loaded question, um, but I'll ask it again. You know, how are you? Well, we're yeah, we're uh, we're living a little bit of a different uh, norm, so to speak, down here. We're we're good. 
Um, all of our people are, are, are safe. Our employees, uh, you know, fans, uh, community members, partners, um, everyone reached out to is, is safe. Um, which is the biggest thing to be thankful for. But with that said, you know, things are, are much different, like I mentioned and, and, um, adjusting to, you know, what's going on here in the market in the area that they're with everybody being safe and, and healthy. There is, there are those that have lost a lot. They've lost a lot in the way of property and possessions and, and, you know, things that, um, and, and people that know people that have lost, you know, friends or family. And, and so it really gets to a point where, um, it's a different reality that we're going through now. And, uh, so all in all, we're, we're okay, but we're, we're in this uh, kind of haze of a new norm and, and trying to learn how to navigate that and, and help each, everyone around us in the meantime. Yeah. Really unique and obviously, you know, difficult times for the area. Um, I guess to start at the, the beginning, so to speak, um, you know, when it first became apparent that there was going to be, you know, a hurricane coming and it was definitely something to take seriously, you know, what is your process as an organization um, you know, there's obviously a lot to balance. Everyone has to worry about their homes and their families, but also, uh, you know, the ballpark as well. You know, what was the sort of uh, action plan that you put together, uh, knowing that a storm was going to hit and, um, you know, that it was a serious one? Yeah, so um, we, we're actually quite familiar with uh, <clears throat> significant weather here in Fort Myers. We we deal with uh, the, the late summer, rainy season, afternoon thunderstorms. Um, storm proofing the building is something that we, we go through several times a year commonly. And, and when we get to hurricane season, um, you know, it's, I'd say on average, probably two, one or two times a year where it, it, we're, we're within or close enough to a hurricane cone that, that we have to activate, you know, the, the storm proofing part of it. Um, you know, for us that, that started the week before the hurricane and, and as the models started to become more clear we started to to uh take take some things that are externally here in the building and and start getting them put inside fortunately i we were at a point where the season was was already over so the, the winterization process of of getting the building prepared for the winter was already well underway we were probably 75 80 percent there in terms of getting that done so that really helped get us further along the road with storm proofing the building um but as we got into that weekend before, you know, we we uh, as we got closer to that Monday, we started sending out messaging um, late Saturday into Sunday, telling people, okay, let's you know take tomorrow and make sure your 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 personal uh, situation is squared away. You have supplies, you have gas, and all of that. Um, we ended up uh, still having the the office open for the front part of Monday and that was really to make sure that the rest of the building and facility was storm proofed we uh if you if you don't know or, or some of your your guests may not know that we are a, a spring training site here we're a the spring training home of the Minnesota Twins our, our parent club um we're also at a, a complex that's owned and maintained by Lee County um, our two closest partners that we have, the Minnesota Twins and Lee County. So we work collectively when it comes to to preparing the building. And, and you know, by that weekend, all entities were, were well underway with getting it ready. Uh, the academy was being cleared out. Players were being sent home. Staff was being notified. And, and again, by that Monday, 
that Monday afternoon, the, the place kind of became a ghost town. And, and at that point, everybody was getting ready to hunker down for that following Tuesday. Yeah, a lot of moving parts to something like this, especially with, as you said, uh, not just a minor league ballpark, but an entire complex uh, hosting spring training. Uh, and ultimately, what uh, sort of damage the, did the ballpark and the, the complex uh, sustain uh, once the storm went through? Yeah, the, the storm itself, I mean, my, I, I give you my personal take on it. I mean, it, I, I've lived in Florida my whole life, not not always in Fort Myers, but I've lived in Florida my whole life. It, it was by far the, the worst hurricane I've ever been through. Um, just it, it, it wasn't moving fast. It was very big. It was very strong. And it just took forever to to get through the area. And, and it did. I mean, widespread damage. Uh, I'm sure everyone has seen pictures and video clips of what uh, what happened in, in this area. Um, so it, it was definitely a, a very frightening time. And, and when you're going through something like that, you can't, your cell phones don't work. Internet goes down, you lose power, you lose connectivity. It, it becomes like something that, you know, you, you probably can only imagine, you know, in, in a dream or something, if, if you're, if you haven't gone through it before. And, and uh, at that point you start really worrying about people. You start worrying about people that live close out to the coast that, you know, did this person evacuate? Did I hear from that person? And and in the meantime, like your, your, your homes or your apartments are, are literally shaking. It's screaming and the wind's screaming. Um, the facility, like, like I said, was a ghost town um, at, at, by that point um, and was prepared as well as it could be for it. Uh, the aftermath um, I think my first day up here was the, the, the afternoon after the storm. So I guess that would have been Wednesday afternoon, evening. Um, and that was when I first put eyes on it. Uh, at that point, this facility was being activated a, a, as an emergency staging site, which it, it does during these type of events. It was the same thing during Hurricane Irma in uh, 2017. And um, so when when we got up here, myself and a, and a, and a couple of colleagues, um, it was, we were preparing for the national guard to move in and, and, you know, pulling up and looking at this place was, it was a little bit different. Um, but by and large, the, the structure, the stadium, uh, the fields and, and all that were, were, were fine. Um, lot, lot of, uh, I don't want to say like maybe cosmetic type damage, um, fencing, um, canopies, you know, some, some trees down, uh, definitely some, you know, some areas that got beat up more than others. Um, but anything that was outward facing uh, definitely got a, a lot of wind, a lot of rain. But fortunately, this wasn't an area that had a, a lot of flooding, uh, which was fortunate for the facility. Um, the academy, you know, made made it through fine um, and good enough to where it could be activated as a an emergency staging area, which you know, again, by that following day, people were moving in national guard, multiple law enforcement agencies, uh, EMS, uh, all kinds of, um, emergency response just, just kind of takes over, you know, and, and, um, uh, for us, we, you know, we operate spring training, we have our crisis management teams, we have our emergency preparedness that we do, but when things like this happen, it becomes a, a state site, you know, and at that point we just, you know, we, we offer our services. How can we help? Um, but it becomes very real, very quick. And, uh, and it, and it certainly did, you know, by, 
two, two or three days after the storm, there were, you know, helicopters landing here, trucks in and out. I mean, it's being guarded by the national guard and, and, um, a lot of assets, a lot of resources were here in a, in a really short time frame. I mean, they, they sent a lot here very, very quickly and which was great, uh, w- which was great to see. So, uh, but by and large it, it, it did fine. I mean, the facility itself, we, we've been off and on working here and, and, um, you know, doing volunteering and, and things with some of these agencies for weeks now. Um, a couple of us, the offices are closed. Most everybody's still remote, um, but it, it, it we're fortunate to have such an amazing complex. Um, the county has been, I mean, Lee County has been just amazing with how they've handled this thing. And, and I just seeing it firsthand and seeing what's happened here has been so impressive to me. And as the leader of the, you know, the Mighty Muscles organization, um, you know, of course, you're concerned about Hammond Stadium and the facilities, but once this happens, I'm sure uh, you're, of course, concerned about your home and your family, and then also all, all the members of the front office staff. And as you mentioned, you know, people might not have signal or power. What was the process like uh, in the aftermath of the storm, kind of getting everyone together, you know, maybe not physically speaking, but, you know, checking in on people and, you know, and, and finding out the status of everyone in the organization? Yeah, no, it's a great question. We, um, I, I can tell you, I mean, I've learned a lot, you know, through this process, um, you know, hopefully never have to go through something like this again. But, you know, when, when it comes to communication, we're, we're, we're really big on that here. You know, we're, we're kind of a unique setting. I, I think we're really one of a kind in how we're set up with um, being a, a single A affiliate of the twins, but also operating here at the spring training site, but also having a, a lot of other different components based on the county's use to the facility and what we do here to where, you know, we're worried about the, the mighty muscles employees, but there's a lot of people, I mean, Minnesota Twins to Lee County. We're talking, I mean, grounds crew, maintenance people. And um, we had started some communication chains and tried to kind of almost like you would an organizational chart. You know, you, you check in the people that are around you here and around you there and have them check on theirs and check. So it was like a, a trickle kind of domino effect of, of just trying to communicate with people as best you could. Um, like I said, when the storm was going on, that was impossible. We had sent some messaging out when the storm came. That that, that was that. Um, by the next day, we were uh, we became we're to the point where we only were really communicating via text. Um, and even that time, you know, doing that was you could send it out, and sometimes people wouldn't get it for three or four hours. Other people would get it like this. Um, and uh, we started just communicating that way on saying, okay, if it, it, does anybody need anything? Does anybody, you know, hurt? Does anybody have any damage? Does anybody need any any quick response right now? And as the hours went on and the days went on, it, it became wellness checks and, and, okay, this group or these people are fine and, and this person's okay. You know, this person lost their house. They're at a shelter. This person you know, is leaving town now, they're evacuating. And we, and we had a lot of that. We had people, some people that did stay here, but then as soon as it, it got safe enough to, to go outside and travel, then, then people left the area at that point. So it was like an ongoing thing for a few days of just trying to keep track of everybody. Um, as the dust settled a little bit after that, we, uh, those of us that had power and, and, and working water, uh, just started to spread the word to invite those that didn't over 
Um, and you know, whether it be for meals, whether it be to, to wash, you know, do, do a load of laundry or take a shower or charge your cell phone. Um, it was just, you know, we started, uh, scheduling time. Say if, if people want to come over at this time, we're going to grill something out you can charge your phone and okay, or, or this. And so we, we slowly kind of began to do that. And as that was going on, different areas of town started to have power restored water. A lot of that was happening inland before it was happening out on, on the islands and Cape Coral and coastal areas. Uh, but there was about a week, you know, there was about a week of that uh, where there really was no ability to communicate any way other than, than cell phones and maybe a, a direct call or, or a text, but emails were pretty much lost and forgotten with zoom calls schedules. I mean, uh, we ended up, um, I think it was the day, maybe it was the Tuesday of the storm where we had effectively canceled everything throughout the end of that week. By the end of the week of the storm, we, we had canceled everything for the following week as well. Offices closed, you know, by the time emergency response came in. So we were entirely shut down for uh, almost two, two full weeks uh, because of it. Um, and then finally the, the, the Monday thereafter uh, is when we started to, you know, ask for employees to start connecting and, and be remote and, and uh, plugging back in a little bit. And, and by that point of time, um, we, we were asking that of all employees that had essential services at their homes. And by then I think we had all, but, just a couple that, that were unable to still have internet at that time. Everybody had power and water by then, but there were still a few that didn't have internet. So um, it was, it was a, a long process to say the least, the longest I've ever been through was something like that. Yeah. And as you begin to, um, well, certainly not return to normalcy, but find the people are, you know, back up and running with their power and their internet. Uh, then there's also the angle of, your organization, like all minor league baseball organizations are important in the community and want to be a face in the community and a help in the community. And, um, you know, so at what point are your thoughts able to turn to that of how do we as an organization, um, you know, get out in the community and help with the recovery process? You know, that again, um, I learned a lot in this process. And, and one thing that was, uh, great to see was, I mean, it wasn't, but two days after the storm and I had people reaching out to me like, Hey, what, how can we help? What can we do? And and these were the people that by and large had, they had, they never really lost power internet for any length of time. They were at home and, you know, somewhat normal inside of their own house or, or apartment bubble and wanted to get out, but didn't know what to do. And, um, like I mentioned, a couple of us had come up here and, and as we were getting the facility ready to house first responders, um, we, uh, we have our food and beverage and catering department. Uh, a couple of, of our people came up and we kicked into action and, and, uh, our first thought was, well, let's, let's, let's get some product out there. Let's make sure these people have water and food and, and, and toiletries and, 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 uh, towels for, to shower, you know, and, and just, stuff that we have. Um, and we got up here and it was not even a day went by and it was very noticeable that people had plenty of resources. They had plenty of water, food. Um, there was a lot of that. So, you know, there, and then, you know, at that point in time, we're, we're starting to shift our focus and a couple more people reaching out saying, how can we help? What can we do? Um, 
And it was right around that time that we were put in touch with uh, some people from the World Central Kitchen. And they were, uh, they had been uh, called here on site as part of the recovery efforts and, and organized an area at our academy where this organization that, that they're all over the world. They, they are in multiple areas, regions, uh, worldwide. Uh, some of the people we worked with had just come from the Ukraine or, or Poland to here. Um, others from the Dominican, um, and we were put in touch with with them. And and as soon as they moved in, our food and beverage director Lauren Merrigan um, immediately plugged in with them and and was right in the middle of the kitchen, um, wearing his his chef's coat and and getting after it, you know, cooking. And after about a day or two and getting a chance to meet with them, uh, we started to really concentrate our efforts with them because it was, again, it was apparent to us that it, what people really needed more than anything was manpower. They needed, they needed bodies. They needed um, some muscle, you know, for, for <laughs> they needed, they needed some mighty muscle, some, some, some people to help. And um, so at that point, again, we were communicating primarily on text and we, and we started to, um, get the message out that, Hey, here we can, we can get some people over here. And at first it was maybe just two or three at a time working a shift and doing everything from cooking to, to prepping and, and boxing meals and then helping with the distribution staff, which was, you know, loading trucks, driving trucks, going out to sites that were, I mean, devastated. Um, you know, we the first few days we were loading helicopters. They were flying helicopters in, landing them. We were loading them with with food and water. They were taking them off. They were flying them to Sanibel, flying them to Pine Island, Captiva, some of the areas that were, you know, just devastated by this that had no access to to land travel, to bridges or anything. And um, as time went on, and we started to get emails back going, we we started to communicate this to our part time staff, full time staff, everybody from you know, ownership down to, uh, you know, interns, um, and just said, okay, here's, here's some information. Here's what they need. You know, tomorrow they need drivers. The next day they need, uh, logistics and, and people to load trucks and, um, people showed up and a lot of our employees started again, that had power and internet and, and were pretty squared away inside of their own bubbles started to come up here daily and, and work daily with the world central kitchen um, so after a few days, there was a lot of people walking around with world central kitchen shirts on and mighty muscle hats on, whether it be world central kitchen employees or our employees and a lot of other volunteers in the community. A, a lot of people that just found out this organization was here, went online, registered for a spot and, and came in. So it was a, it was to us the best way that we could help, uh, the community is to, uh, as operators of this facility is come here and help operate this facility, but in a way that will distribute thousands, tens of the hundreds of thousands of meals uh, into this community um, to the point to where it's, it's still going on today. And, and um, I've been back to work here at the stadium pretty much full time. This is my second week. Um, but I stop in there on, on my morning drive, you know, pull into the complex and I'll check in with the guys. We had three employees there today again. Um and every day they're, they're still up there. So th that's where we, we sent our, I guess, drew our attention is, is really is trying to volunteer and help this organization. It sounds like they're going to be 
packing up and out of here in the next few days, which will be sad to see. They're great people to work with, but I think a good sign overall that we're our market and our areas on the road to recovery here uh, and being a little more self-sufficient. Um, that's really where we focused our concentration. As time goes on, there's there's been a lot of internal conversation between, um, you know, muscles, uh, ownership, uh, twins, partners uh, on going in and doing some things as we get closer to spring training and into spring training and, you know, potentially some donations, some charitable things. There's a lot of that stuff that's in motion right now. Not None of which I, I'm, I think is clear enough to really speak on at this point. Um, but I think that 2023 will, will really see a lot of, um, I, I think, the baseball be, becoming what can bring this area a little bit more back to normal at that time. Um, it'll still be a long road to recovery, but hopefully the, the twins and the muscles can help get some things somewhat close to back to normal as we approach spring training of 23. Yeah, I mean, obviously the normal offseason timetable is – quite different for, for the organization this year. Um, but, you know, building off what you just said, what I imagine that, you know, spring training in March and Mighty Muscles opening day in April, um, you're going to have to, you know, pack more planning for that season into a shorter amount of time than usual. Um, but it also might, seems like it might be a much more meaningful season just having gone through this, just to see baseball again. Um, you know, where are you at right now in terms of, being able to do the quote unquote normal stuff, you know, involving just, you know, planning for the season ahead. Yeah. You know, uh, me personally, I can tell you, I, I feel a lot more organized. Um, just, I was just talking to a couple employees about this today. I feel a lot more organized, you know, than two weeks ago or even a week ago. Um, the trouble is actually taking an action and, and making progress, you know, right now is difficult because um, everyone's kind of like us, you know, it's, it's, they're working, but they're working on really a lot of recovery and a lot of um, relief and, and trying to pick up the pieces and, and repair things. And then, you know, people out there are dealing with their insurance companies they are dealing with their business partners that, that lost this or their clients that lost, and they're trying to help them. And that makes it really difficult to, to make progress in a, in a, in a normal way. You know, right now, the end of October, we'd, we'd be, a month into our hiring or, or our, our job application uh, and hiring processes for spring training, we'd be ordering equipment. We'd be uh, well underway uh, at this stage in the game. And right now we're, we're, we're not there. Um, but I, I see it as a challenge. I, I think, you know, the last couple of years have, have taught us that, you know, you don't, you don't always need all that time. You know, we, we had to deal with a little bit of a delayed season last year um, and some uncertainty late, late into the equation last year. Um, and the year before was pretty abnormal as well, you know. So we I, I hate to say we've become accustomed to it. Um so I, I, I guess a lot of us here are our 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 anxiety levels are are not what they would have been had this been our first round of being almost in November and, and not what we think is ready. Uh, that said, the twins, the muscles in Lee County have, in the last couple of years have found a way to, I think, really get it done and get it done in a, a very professional and fan-friendly manner. 
I don't see that being any different this year. There's some really good people that work here for these organizations and um, people that care a lot. You know, they, they really just, it's, it's not just coming in and working your hours and going home. It, it's a lot of thought and effort and, and um, concentration that goes into what goes on here for the twins, the muscles in, in Lee County. And, and I think this year uh, will be another sign of, of how much our people care and, and, um, what we can do for the community here. Yeah, you're right. And taking not just uh, the hurricane, but the last couple of years in this industry, abnormal has unfortunately sort of become the new normal. Uh, but nonetheless, um, you know, wishing you the best, you, the entire organization, the best on, on the road to recovery and planning for opening day 2023. And uh, Judd Loveland, uh, General Meyer, <laughs> general manager for the Fort Myers Mighty Muscles, uh, thanks so much for coming on the podcast and uh, filling us in on your situation. Uh, thanks, Benjamin. Thanks for having us and uh, really appreciate it. Thank you. Big thanks to Fort Myers' uh, general manager, Judd Loveland, for joining the show on uh, this week's edition. And uh, with that, we're going to pivot and talk some uh, baseball as we head into the final days of October, uh, in a sign of our changing world. Uh, I got a text from my dad the other day and, um, this is not really a sign of our changing world at all, but it is, uh, a sign of the changing world as it at least pertains to baseball over the, uh, last, you know, however many years, uh, that the playoffs have been expanding. My dad texted me and said, quote, I was curious about how late in the year the World Series takes place these days. I looked up the dates in the 1963 World Series, which is when my dad was 10 years old. Do you want to guess what the dates were for the 1963 World Series, Sam? Oh, boy. Um, I'll say like October 3rd. It was October 2nd. October 2nd to the 6th was the World Series. And the World Series now is barely even starting in October, uh, which is crazy. But, um, hey, man, I like I know we've had a whole bunch of like, oh, the higher seats got upset. We should just declare the champion after the regular season and wipe out the playoffs. I love the new playoff format. I think it's great. And not just because, uh, you know, we're seeing some upsets in Cinderella stories. I think it's fantastic. And I already have a friend who's an Astros fan who was like, preemptively complaining about like, well, if the Phillies win, they're not the best team. The Astros are the better team in the world in the regular season, blah, blah, blah. I, so I don't care. This isn't yeah, the premier I mean, league. We don't crown champions based on regular season results. That's what playoffs are for. I don't, I don't care about who had the better regular season. You get into the playoffs, you win the world series, you earned it. Right. Right. I mean, it's, it, it's funny hearing an Astros fan say that because if that were true, right. then the Dodgers would have been champions. A while right. Ago. Exactly. Like, the Astros yeah. have no legs to stand on right. except for an AL pennant. Like right. they would have gotten the AL pennant if that was the case, but that's not what we're playing for starting on Friday. So right. um, I, I think it's too early to judge. Honestly, like, I, I've enjoyed this. I really it's have way too the early. games. The games have been a lot of fun. Yes. It's been great to see Philly go on this run to get, a guy like Bryce Harper, who is a superstar in the sport. I mean, a lot of people have judged up. Like, we've known about Bryce Harper for a decade and a half at this point. Yeah. Yeah, um, since he was on the cover of Sports Illustrated at 16 or 17. Yeah, and even before that, he was appearing in, like, the New York Times. And yeah. It's like, he was declared the LeBron James of baseball for a long yeah. time. And here he is finally playing in his first World Series because he went on an insane run. I kind of wish – I had asked Ben this, like, what was his reaction when Harper hit that homer? Because that's going to be playing in Philly forever. 
Like those are just really, really cool moments. Um, but this is like a one season sample is what we're right. getting right now. Right. Yeah. Like, even by the end of the world series, it's way too early to judge. You got to let this playoff format play out for five or 10 years before right. you can actually judge whether or not it, uh, you know, over favors. And this is the same argument against wildcard teams uh, for the last, you know, couple of decades that, Oh, well, we've seen so many wildcard teams in the world series because they've had to play, you know, backs against the wall for the last, however long of the regular season to make it into the playoffs, whatever. Okay. Sorry. That's that's fun. Playoffs right. are fun. Cinderella stories are fun. Uh, and the Phillies aren't a bad team. No, no. It's not like this is an 81-win team that somehow got in in a wild card. Like, they played in the best division in the National League. Uh, they knocked off their, uh, you know, the reigning World Series champions who came out of that division. Um, I have zero problem with this whatsoever. Yeah. And zero like, problem look, with it. I brought up Harper before, but you look at the team, like Kyle Schwarber. Yeah has been insanely good at hitting home runs this year. Not so good on average in strikeouts, but like hitting the ball hard. That's what yep. Kyle Schwarber does. Reese Hoskins, one of our favorite players to cover during the minor yep. leagues, has become an icon in Philly. Like he's always been pretty well known because he's homegrown and all that stuff. But his bat slam, like that's an iconic moment. Yes. Um, I know we're talking about a lot about the Phillies here. The Astros have done the same thing. Like Jeremy Pena winning ALCS MVP. Right. Was so cool as a rookie. Um, I think he was the fifth person ever to for fifth ever rookie to ever win an LCS MVP. Um, so, you know, it's not easy to do, but he's replaced Carlos Correa incredibly well at shortstop um, and, and guys like Jordan Alvarez getting their spot in the, in the spotlight. Uh, I know he didn't have his grade in ALCS, but like might be the best left-handed hitter in the game right now. Justin Verlander coming off Tommy John might be the yeah. right best right-handed pitcher. Certainly in the American League, maybe in baseball, like it's just been incredibly fun to see these guys take the stage and run with it. And, you know, somebody like Ranger Suarez closing out the game in Philly um, after he was used as a starter. Sir Anthony Dominguez being really good as a reliever. Framber Valdez <laughs> continuing to be dominant out of the Houston rotation. Like this, this series is filled with stars. It is not just guys who got lucky. Right. Um, both managers have been really good at using their rosters and making the most of the talent that they have. And Two managers the right are guys, easy to cheer for. Yeah, in the right spot. I mean, Dusty Baker, imagine if he yeah. gets his first World Series. Is anybody going to say, like, well, you know, he was actually out, had the second best record in the regular season? No. Right. right. They're not going to put that on the plaque. No. No. When he gets um, into the Hall of Fame. So not let us, I hope he does. So. Let us state for here and now that your arguments against the playoffs are all dumb. And, uh, <laughs> We're moving on from that. Well, Tyler, do you have a pick? Um, you know, I picked the Astros last year, uh, because I just feel like the way the world goes now, uh, a team like the Astros is probably gonna win a World Series. You know, I will um if Dusty Baker gets a ring, I will be very, very happy for Dusty Baker. I think the Astros are the better team. Uh, I think the Astros will probably win the World Series. Uh, now the Astros are what they are in the landscape of American sports now. And, uh, you know, my same friend who uh, is mad that the Phillies are in the World Series because they're the opponent for the Astros who are the better regular season team. He's also very much of the mindset of like people need to get over the Astros cheating scandal. Um, you know, I don't I don't agree with that. I don't think people need to get over that at all. And I think that's something that will be attached to the Astros franchise for as long as people have memories of it happening. Um, but you can think the things that you want to think about the Astros because of that. And I, I will not 
uh, judge or um, disagree with people for that. But I do also think that it is important to point out that the Astros are a wildly different team now than they were when they won that World Series. They have a lot of the same contributors. But yeah, you look at a lot of the names that are gone. um, This team is very, very different from that one. And there are some really good stories and some really interesting pieces um, that are, you know, pressing this franchise forward. And, um, you know, so I think the Astros are the, are the better team. Uh, I think they probably will win, but it's hard to pick against a team that's on the run. Like the, like the Phillies are just from an emotional standpoint. I know the Astros have yet to lose a playoff game. Obviously they've been uh, an incredible story so far this postseason. but man, that the energy in, in Philadelphia right now, like what a win that would be for that franchise for Bryce Harper to be able to, to carry a team to a world series title and for, fulfill the destiny of his baseball life. Um, that'd be incredible. So you know, I just talked out of both sides of my mouth to kind of pick both of them. Um, I think it'll probably be the Astros, but, uh, you know, I, I think the Phillies have something very special happening there. Yeah, I think, I mean, it just comes down to like the cold calculating right version is that the Astros are the favorites and then they're favorites for, the re- for a reason. And then right. you kind of have to talk yourself out of the Astros. Yeah. Um, their their starting rotation is just so good. Their lineup is deeper than Phillies is. Um, they, it's just, it's tough to see them being beat, but it can happen. Yeah, you know, certainly. I said this on another podcast this week. Like if you get Schwarber magic, if you get Hoskins magic, if you get Harper magic, you get Sir Anthony Dominguez throwing like two or three innings every other game and Zach Wheeler just going off in one game. And then somehow maybe, you know, Aaron Nola has a good game one. Zach Wheeler has a good game two it's possible that Philly gets steals one in Houston and yeah. then is going back to Philly tied even. And now that's they the have thing. Field advantage. If the Phils can steal one in Houston, you know, I think if the Mariners get game one in the, in the division series, I think there's a very good chance the Mariners win that. So I think the Astros led for an entirety of like five innings in that series. And they ended up mm-hmm. sweeping the Mariners. Um, it's very different. The Astros obviously have not lost a game in the postseason, but it is not that the Astros have looked unbeatable. No. which I think are two different things. So you don't get if to Philly, 18 innings or whatever it was. Right. Right. Um, if, if Philly is able to steal a game in Houston, um, <laughs> then I feel like there is much more of a, Oh man, they can really do this. Um, you go back to Philly down two Oh, it's not, uh, you know, it's not an impossibility, but man, against that Houston team winning four out of five seems very, very difficult. Yeah. So, I mean, I, my pick officially, I've made this in other places, was Astros in five. Yeah. I, I do think Philly can steal one with Zach Wheeler, um, potentially in game two, or if they bring him back for like a game four or well, probably later in the series. But I, I have Astros in five, um, and I think Alvarez is going to be the uh, MVP just because he's such a good left-handed hitter. Yeah. I mean, the guy just hits – yeah, the ball so incredibly well. Philly is a little bit more of a hitter's park. Um, uh, it'd be better if he was right-handed, so he was aiming for the Crawford boxes. But obviously, that hasn't been a concern during the regular season. So, yeah, I think this is kind of his coming out party on a very big national stage. Um, but would not be surprised if it goes either way. I think we're in for a fun series, no matter what. I agree. Um, also, on just a uh, completely different note, how about Jose Altuve? Yikes! Three for thirty-two. Mm-hmm. 11 strikeouts. Thanks. Um, 
you know, I didn't really have any point to bringing that up. Just uh, that dude is, you know, was the best hitter on the planet for a while. And uh, that is not uh, his previous numbers in the postseason. Well, 2021 numbers were not very good. Uh, he hit 209. I mean, the OPS was fine. He had an OPS of 777 thanks to five homers. But prior to that, 2020 and 13 playoff games, an OPS of 1229, 971 OPS in 2019. Um, in the 2017 year, a 1022 OPS over 18 games. Interesting. Uh, anyway, let's move on. We were actually supposed to talk about that second, but I just somehow shoehorned. I mean, it's the big baseball news of the week. It is. Right? That is true. Yeah, that is true. Uh, we're a minor league baseball podcast. Just spent 20 minutes talking about the big league world series, but Hey man, it's world series time. I mean, again, if we want to turn this into a minor league podcast, we can yeah. say like, again, Jeremy Pena won the ALC homegrown guy as a rookie homegrown player, uh, really good defender, really good runner. Didn't get on base as much as I think anybody would have liked him to, but showed plenty of power during this season. And we will tie this back in later. Uh, one of my favorite facts about Jeremy Pena, grew up, was born in Dominican, grew up in Rhode Island, uh, went to the University of Maine. It was a the Maine Black, Black Bears. Bear. And why am I bringing that up? Well, you'll see when Josh comes on next week. <laughs> How's that? So I like that. I like that tease. Uh, so let's, uh, dive into something minor league baseball related. The Arizona fall league is coming to its apex here in 2022. And Sam, as he noted earlier, is currently in the grand Canyon state. Uh, you've gotten to watch the AFL for a few days. Give us the, your impressions of this year's crop of prospects. Obviously you've been watching from afar for a little while, but being there on the ground in Arizona, tell us what it's been like. Yeah. I mean, it's like every year, the Arizona fall league is one of the great events for prospect watchers, anybody who cares about the minor leagues, specifically players, every game here feels like an all-star game. Um, we're, we're coming up on the fall stars game next weekend. And I'm very excited to be here for that. And we can talk about that more next weekend when rosters are set and there's a home run derby this year. Um, so very much looking forward to that. But yeah, my first game when I got here uh, on Monday, I got here last weekend, but my first game on Monday was Kamar Rocker. Uh, who, you know, talking to some of my pipeline colleagues, uh, Jim Callis has said might be the fourth most famous uh, fall leaguer of all time, or at least mostly like high anticipation, um, just because we haven't seen him yet in the minors. We saw him in indie ball this year. He's a surprise pick at number three overall to the Rangers. Some questions about his shoulder, considering he had surgery last year, and his elbow it seemed like the Mets were concerned about both of those last year. That's why they didn't sign him out of the draft. Rangers not as concerned, taking number three overall, sign him, add him to their mix. They let him debut in the fall league. I got him for his longest start so far. Um, he eclipsed 50 pitches in, in one start for the first time uh, so far with surprise. He pitched in the third inning for the first time. He was around 94-96 which is a step up from where he was in his last Vandy season. So that's that's good. Again, only pitching in the third inning. It wasn't a very lengthy outing. Uh, but his fastball command was actually pretty spotty. He opened the game with five straight balls, which prompted Henry Davis, the 2021 number one overall pick, to come out and chat with him, just give him a minute. Uh, Rocker said that was very helpful. Uh, so it's good to see them have a similar rapport, um, or a good rapport anyway. But, yeah, what – when Rocker was really on, it seemed like it was the slider in the second inning. He was just getting whiff after whiff after whiff with that slider. It's a grade we grade out at 70 on the 20 to 80 scale. Uh, and it looked every bit of that, that 70 grade when I saw it. Um, so he said, like, that's, you know, that's where I'm going to get my swings and misses on right now. 
Um, it's good to have that in the back pocket, but it's going to come down to fastball command, which makes sense for somebody who's had such a lengthy time off is still coming off surgery. Sometimes putting the ball where you want is the last thing to come. It's good that the velocity was at least there. Um, some of the other things that have stood out to me this week, uh, I got to see Jordan Walker Homer. Uh, he's the top prospect in the fall league this year. Jordan Walker, if you've ever seen him play in the Cardinal system, just a massive human being. Um, they are moving him to the outfield this year. I got to see him from right field. He's had some incredible throws in the fall league, um, you know, hitting up, upper 90s from the outfield. Uh, some of the hardest throws that Cardinals outfielders have ever had in the stack cast era. So we know his arm is going to play out there. It's roughly average speed, I would say. He covers a good ground for his size, but you know, I don't I don't think he's going to be a full-time center fielder. But if he can be a right fielder, that gets him out of the shadow of Nolan Arenado. Um, so the arm playing out there is certainly a good sign for him. The fact that the power is playing. The Cardinals, you look at their crop last year, pretty much everybody who they sent to the fall league. I think actually it was everybody they sent to the fall league played for the big league club this year. This is an organization that treats the AFL not as a way to make up for lost innings or lost at bats necessarily, but as an actual prospect proving ground, prospect training school, whatever you want to call it, uh, or finishing school. It's a real opportunity to launch yourself into the major league conversation. Brendan Donovan was in the AFL last year. Lars Newpart was in the AFL last year. Nolan Gorman, all those guys made significant co contributions to St. Louis this year. So Jordan Walker using this opportunity to not only show, you know, offensively that he can hit. And again, saw um, Homer, who was a long, majestic Homer, looked great. The bat's certainly going to play, uh, but proving to them that he can play the outfield. And what I saw, he looked fine. Uh, and again, if the arm's going to work out there too, that's just another weapon that Jordan Walker has. So I was excited to see him. Um, maybe my personal highlight was something I wrote about on Wednesday. Uh, Zach Daniels the Astros prospect hit a homer according to Trackman, and I triple checked with the guy next to me and with Zach Daniels himself it was measured at 481 feet which it's pretty good insane. pretty good pretty good pretty, pretty 19 good. feet shy 500 pretty good exit velocity of 114 miles an hour um so you know again every bit of those 481 feet and you saw where it lit, like the he hit it to right center, so it was an oppo shot off Ryan Cusick, a guy who can touch triple digits. So Daniels even said to me, like, I don't really have to do much. He provides the power. The ball is coming in at 100. I'm sending it out at 114. You just have to make solid contact. Um, not everybody can hit it 481 feet, mind you. The guy has really, really good raw power. Um, but, yeah, the fence at Surprise Stadium was 400 feet. He hit it over the berm beyond it onto the concourse in right center. Um, so that was really neat to see. Uh, Noel V. Marte hit one that Trackman had at 460 feet. Uh, Noel V. Marte, we always thought, can be a really good power hitter. He's the reason why he's a top 100 prospect. Um, but Zach Daniels taking, making the most of this opportunity. And for him, he was coming off a right wrist injury that kept him out for two weeks in the fall league. So I was like, how does it feel now? He's like, I think I think we're good. I think we're good now. Um, so uh, that, was, that was special to see. That's you know, we can make a list of the top prospects in the fall league, and that's good to do every year. But, um, you know, it, I get more excited by the guys who are breakout guys here who are, you know, using six weeks in the desert in which you are going up against top competition to show, hey, I belong here. Uh, I'm a name you should know. One I'll throw out who was on my list, but like is becoming a bigger name out here is Edouard Julien. 
of the Minnesota Twins had back-to-back two homer games. Julian, like he, what he's known for coming into this is taking walks and, and making solid contact, but more of an on-base guy. So for him to have four homers in the span of two games, um, I think entering today, he was the OPS leader in the Arizona Fall League. He has a one two six four ERA. He's slugging above 700. And oh, by the way, he's still reaching base. He's got 14 walks in 13 games and a 525 on base percentage. Um, so he's really taking advantage of this and showing like, hey, I have a little bit more than just a really discerning eye at the plate. So that's what's going on in the Arizona Fall League. You can uh, continue to uh, track the AFL um, and uh, all of the top prospects in minor league baseball who are in the Arizona Fall League at MILB.com and MLB Pipeline as well. The uh, 2022 Arizona Fall League uh, schedule, which continues over the next uh, really just like week and a half now. There is uh, not a whole lot else coming up. The Fall Stars game is next week. It's next weekend. Followed yep. by the championship game pretty much immediately afterwards. Uh, a week, that a week, week after that. Yeah, yeah, that week is is big. It used to be mid-season for the Fall Stars game, uh, and then the end of the season was the championship, but now everything is kind of you know packed around the same uh, week of events, which I think is really cool. Um, and uh, there, finally, I've got the... Uh, actual dates in front of me. So the Fall Stars game, the home run derby is on November 5th. The game itself is on November 6th. And then the play-in semifinals are on uh, Friday the 11th and the championship is Saturday the 12th. Whew. That was a lot of tap dancing to try to get to where the actual dates were. But I did it. We got it in the end. And look at that. Just to bring it back to what we were talking about at the beginning, there's expanded playoffs in the AFL. Exactly. And you know what? They'll probably be fun. With the AFL, it's a little different because there's six teams and four get in. But still, uh, it's very cool. Um, So that's uh, our AFL conversation for this week's episode of the show before the show. Josh Jackson swings by for Ghost of the Miners, and we're back to wrap it up on the other side. this podcast to bring you another thrilling edition of ghosts of the miners now here's your correspondent and host joshua jackson in which all of you out there in Radioland must identify as a legitimate historical ball club hiding amidst the fraudulent pair. One is worth talking about more than a century later. The others have never previously been mentioned. In the last segment, I asked you which of the following minor league baseball teams did at one time exist. A. The Richmond Richmen. B. The Eureka Gold Grabbers. C. The Bangor Millionaires. You're in the money if you picked C, the Bangor Millionaires, who earned their keep in the New England State League from 1894 through 1896, representing Maine's Queen City long before it became famous for Stephen King. Situated just upriver from the bay where the Penobscot meets the Atlantic, Bangor enjoyed a prosperous second half of the 19th sea, as lumber barons accumulated fortunes by having forests of timber floated down the river from Maine's north woods for processing in the city's hydro-powered sawmills. 
then shipping the output, mostly planks for ships and construction, or huge reams of paper, the world over. With ostentatious mansions dotting Bangor's broad way, the burb got a reputation for being home to the hoity-toity, especially as the hoi polloi of New England, who relied not on lumber but the shoe and textile mills, suffered the effects of the Panic of 93. And so, when Bangor burst into the New England League the very next season, the millionaires they were called. You might think those millionaires of the Queen City immediately became diamond royalty, but they were outclassed. Bangor got a lot of bang for its bucks, but the club fell to Fall River, a team representing one of those depression-stricken textile towns in the region, in all three of its years in the New England League, which the Fall River Club dominated from its inaugural season of 1893 straight through the year the millionaires spent their last dime, 96, when Fall River featured a promising Rhode Island-born rookie by the name of Nap Lajaway, who was paid an astronomical sum of $500 for the season. Even if the millionaires weren't shelling out that kind of scratch, they did break even, 48 and 48, in their inaugural season, and in the next two years, a bet on them was usually money in the bank. And, in fact, they might have sunk Fall River in 96 had all been on the level. The season officially finished with the two teams tied in wins, but with Fall River having more losses. Bangor's newspapers declared the millionaires champs on September 8th, but three days later, Fall River played some hastily scheduled makeups of previously canceled games against clubs like the Pawtucket Maroons and the New Bedford Browns. Bangor protested the New England League's decision to name Fall River champions, making noise at a meeting the following January at the famous Parker House Hotel in Boston. But the millionaires couldn't accumulate enough interest in their case and ultimately came away empty-handed and empty-pocketed. Officials from other teams also complained about travel costs to Bangor only to have games against the millionaires not pay out. So, Bangor left the loop joining a renegade Maine State League for an ill-fated 1897 season as the Bangor Cup. They never grew into bears, as the circuit quit in July. Aww. And that's how the millionaires went broke. Now, on to the question for next time. Which of these teams might have taken off for Europe in the minors of yesteryear? A. The Laredo Launchers B. The Athens Airmen C. The Paris Rockets Want to know the answer? Get airborne. Or tune in to the next Ghost of the Miners. But for now, you'll have to excuse me. My producer, Ben Hill, is joining the geese as they fly south for winter, and he is one odd duck. <laughs> <laughs> Josh Jackson bringing the uh, bringing the knowledge as always on Ghost of the Miners. I mean, how how much of a Josh version of Ghost of the Miners was that? I mean, it was Bangor very Maine. good. It yeah. was and very it's very good. good. It, it you learn something from it. I mean, I, I emailed Josh when he sent out the script. My grandma is you know I always considered the queen of Bangor, Maine. Like I just heard about Bangor all the time. That was her hometown growing up. Um, so it was almost like this mythic land up in Maine that she would always talk about. We were not millionaires as far as on, as far as I know, like none of that money trickled down to us. Uh, but uh, it was really fun to see that script come through and, and see Bangor featured in this way, because right now we only have one 
main minor league team that is obviously in Portland, uh, but just a good reminder that minor league baseball touches all the states in multiple ways and has a history everywhere. Very much going to need a um, picture from Josh of uh, the thing that is described on Google's quick facts of uh, Bangor, Maine or Banger, Maine, as uh, Johnny Cash does in that song. Uh, Quote, on Main Street, a towering statue of folkloric lumberjack Paul Bunyan hints at Bangor's former status as a timber hub. So, Josh, please photo with the Paul Bunyan, please. With a matching shirt, if you have one, I would imagine he's wearing some kind of flannel. I mean, he um, must have. He must have that. So. I'm sure he has the uh, suspenders somewhere too. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that'll do it for this week's episode of the show. Before the show, uh, you can find us again on social media. Sam said, Sam Dexter, M I L B. Josh Jackson, Josh Jackson, M I L B. Benjamin Hill at Ben's Biz. I am at Tyler Mon. And uh, for all those dudes, uh, that's all. I'm Tyler. We'll talk to you next week. Oh, 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 oh,